What do you got? Do you remember how Bob, Babu Frick says, Hey, hey, hey! Hey, hey! Not specifically. I remember that he says Babu Frick. He says name. Babu Frick? I think he probably introduces himself at some point. I think he introduces himself in his own language. And then he starts to speak a little bit of English and he says, Hey, hey! Someone once showed me... You know that guy that writes a song a day? Oh, uh, yeah. Did you know that he wrote a song about Babu Frick? I didn't specifically know that. Stop playing. Here it comes. I'm Tim. I'm Duncan. Uh, it's uh, the return of the book boys. Uh, later on, we'll be talking about the final three chapters of Emily Nemens' uh, novel, The Cactus League. All done with this one. Who knows where we're going from here? Not us. We, we don't know. That. We gotta figure that out. Uh, first things first, we have to um, raise the roof and, yep, go back to doing that and then add some inches to my vertical. I did it this week. I jumped. This um, is this is fantastic news. Last week uh, I challenged you. Last two weeks ago, four, a fortnight ago, I mm-hmm. challenged you to break the century mark. And not only have you done it, you've set an all-time record in your vertical leap. No, you haven't. Not, no, no haven't. you haven't. Not. I take it back. Uh, no, but I got pretty close. And for some reason, the uh, chalk marks on the brick wall, um, uh, uh, on the side of my apartment building, do not wash away with rain, which I'm only slightly nervous about that's fine i mean i'm sure that like with a nice like with a directed uh spray of water they'll go away yeah oh that's to say that i can still see like all my chalk marks um so i could see that one 101 which is my personal record um and today i I did just miss it uh by a quarter of an inch uh jumped 103 quarters inches with a yellow chalk piece of chalk in my hand in the pouring down rain <clears throat> just uh for this podcast um it's not pouring down rain it's drizzling uh, how is your workout routine coming it's okay i uh i'm, I'm committed to doing i think a hundred squats and a hundred lunges with the medicine ball every day um i think maybe i could have jumped even higher today but i made the mistake of doing that routine exactly uh right before i jumped 
and I think I think it was a little bit heavy on my thighs. Yeah, just you're not going to be able to jump as high after you've exhausted your muscles. Yeah, uh, so I should probably taper uh, a little bit. Um, but that seems like a nice sort of base workout to be doing as long as I don't have access to like a wheel, real uh, sort of weight circuit. I mean, it um, seems like you're doing good exercises, but progression is key. Progressive yeah. overload. So, you know, if you do 100 every day, you'll get a little bit stronger, but you're not challenging your muscles to do things they haven't done before. Well, I want to get this 100 under control first, um, because I am still a giant weak baby and can't even touch my toes. Um, so I'd like to get there first, and then maybe I'll start adding extra sets. Um, <clears throat> the standard, as I think I've mentioned on this podcast before, the standard like punishment regimen uh, in my high school, uh, rowing team was to do, uh, five by 50 of those. Uh, I'm not doing the plyometrics yet either. Maybe I could add that too. Uh, but in high school we did plyometrics, uh, jumpies and cross countries, um, which are basically squats and lunges. Um, and we did them, if you were like in really big trouble for your grades or for some other kind of misconduct, you had to do them, uh, in five sets of 50, um, which is very easy to say five by 50. Um, uh, and, uh, just actually so many squats and lunges in reality, uh, it's a lot. Um, That's a ton. So I think if I could work to five, being able to do five by 50, that would be cool. Mm -hmm. Um, for the moment I can do two by 50, um, which is what I have been doing. Okay. Not bad. Um, but you know, that'll get, we'll ratchet it up. Hopefully, hopefully I'll be able to go to the gym at some point though. Oh man, wouldn't that be sweet? Do you think that's ever going to happen again? No. Or do you think gyms are a thing of the past? I think gyms will be the last to come back after like pastry shops. Pastry shops are like open right now. What's a funnier example? Playgrounds? There's nothing funny about this. No, but also gyms. I think you make a an astute point, which is that like gyms are absolutely like in under normal circumstances are a breeding ground for germs. Yeah. Um, and so you're probably right that. That's going to be, like, not until we get a vaccine uh, will gyms be open, I bet. Well, I mean, it depends on what people's strategy is for reopening. I don't think that I, I don't think that we're going to remain closed until we have a vaccine, although a lot of people are kind of pointing that direction. Um, it just doesn't seem feasible to me. But, yes, gyms are a fantastic place to catch the coronavirus. I suspect that very many people will not leave their houses again until there's a vaccine regardless of whether or not the economy is quote-unquote open? Um, I think it, it could be like 18 months, right? Like we've only done a month. It's going to yeah. be so long before there is a vaccine. Yeah, but I mean, the one thing is that like, one thing that a lot of people are learning and this is that they can do their jobs remotely almost completely. Yeah, that's great. But there's a big difference between that and not leaving your house. You know what I mean? I, like I think there are intermediary steps. There are things that can be open. Maybe you're right. Maybe gyms won't be open, although I kind of doubt it. But more like theaters are open, but only at 50% capacity. Think, you know, steps like that, as opposed to an entire economic shutdown for 18 months. Imagine a movie theater being sold out, like, ever. I've experienced it. I have too, but only in like the rarest of circumstances on like the busiest, highest traffic nights of going to the movies. <clears throat> I imagine it's going to be a lot more frequent. Um, 
if that is the strategy going forward. I hadn't heard that specifically. They did that for a couple days before they shut down New York, at least, and I think in other places. Hmm. Did you attend any movies in that time? I attended a movie during... I saw the movie uh, Onward when coronavirus was a going concern, but I don't think they had limited it at that point. I'm curious to see. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I'll get to see it. I I would be curious to see um, life being capped at 50%, basically. Or, like, public life being capped at 50%. Yeah, it, it feels necessary to me. I'm not, you know, I don't want to be like a, one of these truthers, but I just don't think that we can keep this up for another year. It doesn't feel feasible to me. Something's going to have to change. Um, the the yells for universal basic income do seem to be getting louder and louder. Um, maybe that will contribute. Yeah, that would help. That would help a lot. I mean, there's one part of this that's just the outrage that people are unable to keep up with their expenses businesses are unable to keep up with the expenses and then there's the other part that is just about how we are all human beings and it is unnatural for us to be cooped up inside not talking to each other limited in our recreation i think okay so first of all i think the first thing that's going to come back is people are going to be like yeah you can go to parks or, like, go run on the trail or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems pretty easy, honestly. Um, Are there places you're not allowed to do that? Uh, you're encouraged not to run outside in Philadelphia right now. Really? Uh, at least not without a mask. Well, um, of course. But uh, why did I bring that up? What were we talking about? I'm sorry, I just completely lost it. Oh, uh yeah, I don't know. I think the government could do a lot more for people to make sure that they're safe in their houses. Like, understanding that it's not great to be cooped up in your house for whatever, like, 22 hours a day or what, however long it might take you to go to the grocery store um, and come back. Um, but I definitely think that, like, if that's what we have to do, and it kind of seems like that is what we have to do, uh, at least for some amount of time, uh, I think that the government could be doing a lot more to make sure that people are okay. Um with that I, I i totally agree with you um we've got a terrible situation here where people are just being forced not to work and also forced to continue paying their expenses yeah uh, but you know the government also again now i'm gonna get in trouble with the left the government doesn't have unlimited resources either right you can keep borrowing but eventually that leads to massive inflation and if nobody is working nobody can pay any taxes they stop bringing in revenue we've got a big problem on our hands it's pretty bad. I agree with you that we probably couldn't make it 18 months like this. Yeah. We'll see how it goes. I, I, I think fortunately, like, you know, this is still the worst part of it. Even if the coronavirus is a going concern and life doesn't go back to normal, the important point is that we're not maxing out the hospital capacity, and that's why we're doing this right now so intensely. Right. All right. Well, I'm glad you jumped higher. Keep it up. And next time I encourage you to jump before you do your leg workout. I think I'll probably just like taper the last leg workout before I jump um, so that I don't have like the full load of the workout on my legs. Well, just jump first and then do the leg workout. Yeah, or whatever. Have your own way. I can't. You need to do it. All right. Well, 
good. What? I don't know. I just feel like if you tire out your legs, you're not going to be able to jump as high. Well, yeah. So what I'm saying is I can like do the workout and then like set up my cycle so that the cycle ends on a taper before the jump and then begins again after the jump. Okay. You're talking different days of the week here. Yeah. Yeah. I usually jump like the morning of recording. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Very good. Very good. And we love to see you progress towards your ultimate goal of dunking a basketball. Um, yeah, uh, who knows when I'll see a basketball hoop again. Probably by the time that February rolls around again, uh, basketball hoops will exist. That's true. <laughs> they haven't stopped. I, I they think took down they all haven't. the basketball hoops in New York. Oh, really? Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> That's... Whoa. Yeah, because teens were playing basketball. Sure, I mean... <laughs> As teens are kind of want to do sometimes. Sure, that's one of the things that teens like to do. I'm given to understand. I haven't uh, checked any of my local basketball courts to see if they've done the same here. Uh, But I hadn't heard anything about it. Surprising. All right, well, I guess uh, we got to get the tot stove uh, out of its cobweb. Uh, Let's peel it open. You did it with your mouth, gross. <laughs> you ate all that spider web. How does it taste? Uh, not good. Yeah, I wouldn't. If I have to be honest. Wouldn't expect so. instead. Napoleon uh, was rumored to have spider silk gloves. I don't know if that's true, but I've always heard it. What? Like gloves made out of spider web material. Like out of a spider's web? Yeah. Napoleon. spider glove sure it seems so delicate how would you even just a lot of it i suppose like a single strand of cotton is very delicate but like how do you even gather that much spider web probably by farming spiders it's like silkworms right they produce a similar substance fair point both louis the 14th and napoleon are rumored to have articles have had articles of clothing made from spider silk um. Oh, this is a beautiful piece. Here is the uh, garment made from spider silk. It's yellow. Mm-hmm. I bet they dyed it. No, oh. I don't know. Looks nice. Well, let's talk. Yeah. So the here's what's going on in baseball. Instead of real baseball games, MLB has commissioned one player from every team to play as their own baseball team on MLB The Show, and they're calling it the MLB The Show Players League. I have not been following this. Um, I have been only peripherally following it, but I do find it interesting uh, to discuss. Some of the baseball players, like Blake Snell, are very good. Blake Snell is in first place right now. I'm aware that Blake Snell is an avid uh, video gamist. He was already a streamer before this began. Joey Gallo yeah. has been kind of the breakout star of this thing, because wow. he's been smashing a lot of dingers with Joey Gallo. That makes sense. <laughs> and um, the league has been broadcast on MLB Network, NESPN, NESPN2, and FS1 because there is an absence of other sports to be played, and now everyone likes esports. And I think, Absolutely. well, that's very interesting and good, even. 
maybe what people is? were resistant to watching esports before and now that it's the only thing on they say well this isn't so bad and maybe instead of laughing at professional esports players and calling them nerds i will respect it because they're at the top of their field even if the people that they're watching right now are not actual esports pros do you think that once baseball players have to go back to work playing like real baseball sorry that's inappropriate uh physical baseball analog baseball yes um it's like mlb the show but in real life right (laughs) do you think that there will be like scores of mlb the show professional athletes i've always wondered what the deal is with mlb the show professional players i've always wanted to watch like the mlb the show finals and it seems less prominent than shooting games in the esports world nba 2k is very prominent yeah um, yeah but only because the nba invested like a lot of money in it um and like individual teams put a lot of money into making sure that they had like um um e-versions of their teams um you know what i mean so like yeah i mean i'll say i think that mlb the show will have grown in popularity at the end of this program and the personalities of the players who have been showcased have gotten a lot of coverage, and now people will like them more. I think it's I wonder, good for baseball that the, the MLB is encouraging this. I just wonder if MLB will, at the other end of this, invest like money in building out an infrastructure so that this can proceed and perhaps compete with its on-field product. Why did the NBA do that? Um, because they are, uh, quote unquote progressive. Uh, but what's their economic incentive? Oh, I'm, sh- I, I don't know. I'm sure that it's just like a, an, an acknowledgement that esports are coming and wanting to be on the, on the cutting edge. And they probably uh, I, have some financial stake in it. Oh, definitely. And I'm sure that they've arranged so that it's not actually competitive. And also <laughs> I feel like the audiences are different, um, for NBA 2K League and the NBA. Probably. I'm sure, I'm sure there's overlap, but like, I imagine it's a small segment of the NBA's audience that is really into NBA 2K. Um, I don't know the answer to your question about what will happen at the end of this, but I do know that it's been good in the meantime, and everyone should be proud of the work that MLB The Show and the players and the MLB are doing to put this on TV. That's my opinion. Heroes. Yeah. Heroes all. I don't think it's too far to call all of those people heroes. Uh, why not call everybody heroes? I wouldn't don't think make, it's too far. Wouldn't that make everybody just feel better if, if it was like everyone's a hero? You know? Uh, yeah, and I think Dash from The Incredibles would be really okay with that as well. Sorry, what? <laughs> uh, Dash from The Heroes... Sorry, Dash from The Incredibles notably said, if everyone's super, then no one is. Wasn't that the bad guy from the first Incredibles? No! Dash is the son who can dash fast. You're thinking of yeah. Syndrome. Yeah, but he was the one who said that. Um, they both said it. Good point. Did Dash say that? Yeah. I don't remember Dash saying that. Yeah, Dash says it at the beginning of the movie. I don't recall it. I recall it being like the Syndrome's kind of whole motivating... It's both Dang. things. It, 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 it echoes at the end oh. of the movie. Interesting. 
because Maybe Dash wants to participate in sports. Yeah. Um, and his mom says, you can't do that. And then he says, I'm special. And then she says, everyone's special, something like this. And he says, if yes, everyone's yes, special, yes. then no one is. Yeah. And then Syndrome wants that to be the case because he's jealous of people with superpowers. And he wants to gift everyone uh, more powerful abilities to which the superpowered individuals have a big problem. They say, well, that can't, that is incorrect because I am privileged. Hmm. <clears throat> it's an interesting movie philosophically. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I wonder if I agree with it. I think you wouldn't. I think a lot of Brad Bird's movies have the same point, which is that it's good or rather some people are better than other people. And we have to acknowledge that that seems to be the moral of many of his films. What is another one of his films? Uh, the Iron Giant. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that movie. Uh, the Incredibles 2 and Tomorrowland yeah. and Mission Impossible. Uh, Rogue Nation, Ghost Protocol, one of them. I didn't see Tomorrowland. I have also uh, not seen Tomorrowland. Or any of the Mission Impossible movies. I have seen Brad Bird's Mission Impossible. Have you seen any of the other Mission Impossible? Missions Impossible? Yeah, I think I've seen the last three. How do you feel about those movies? I think they're good. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I don't have an opinion. You haven't seen them? Yeah. The Chinese Professional Baseball League is yeah. in play. They're currently playing professional baseball in Taiwan, and here's the difference. One difference. They only have four teams, which is kind of fun and interesting. Second difference, instead of... Um, fans in the stadiums they have cardboard cutouts weird third distance a uh, third difference between chinese professional baseball and the major leagues is that they have cheerleaders cheering to no one which is fantastic <laughs> on its own those two differences the cardboard cutouts of fans in the stadium and the cheerleaders cheering to an empty stadium. Um, I don't like I, they, they individually, they bother me taken as a set. I really enjoy it. They're cheering for the cardboard cutouts. It's a very entertaining image. Occasionally the, they do have English commentary on these games broadcast sometimes via a link I see on Twitter. I think they are, they are broadcast somewhere standard, but I don't, I haven't quite figured it out. Um, and the commentators will say, oh, the fans looking really disappointed or something like that. Uh, and is it's it, cute and heartwarming and we love it. There's, there's a wink. It's a, it's a wink and a, a winking. Yeah. Okay. I think you, I think you understand. They're not real people. You see what? Yeah. Okay. That's, that's where the confusion was. Yeah. I was, I didn't understand how cardboard worked. <laughs> Uh, I haven't gotten to watch any of the CPBL. I don't know where to find it. I don't see the links. I don't know who to follow. Who should I follow? Just uh, baseball people. They're tweeting about it. It's usually on in the early morning because of the time difference. Yeah, that's probably why I keep missing it. You're sleeping in. Not usually. How early does it come on? I think it starts at 6 or 7 usually. That's around when I wake up. You should check Sports 13 or just search Chinese Professional Baseball League on your Google machine. Mm, okay. Are they on daily? Yeah, it's baseball. 
But there's only four teams. They play every day. Each team plays for it every day. I don't think each team plays every day, but there is a game, at least one game every day. So that they alternate, probably, I guess. Yeah. I want to learn about this. I'm going to come back to it. I want to be like the biggest Chinese professional baseball league fan. They hit a lot of home runs, which is fun. Really? Yeah. That's a different vibe. Yeah. I mean, not different. Not that different, but they hit a lot of home runs. There are a lot of like 10 to 11 scores. Your mouth is agape. That's too many scores. I my my opinion on how baseball needs to change is well documented. Um, move the fences back and make them uh, way taller than they are right now. Yeah, and we've discussed this. Make the entire walls video screens so that the fans are like it's like they're looking at an actual baseball game, mm-hmm. but it's actually a giant hyper realistic video screen. That's right. Yeah, we've discussed this extensively. Yep. Want to talk about this book now? Emily Nemens is the Cactus League. That's right. Yes. We finished it. Congratulations, Tim. It's the first book that I've read uh, in a while. How does it feel to finish a book? Regular. I think that's maybe why I don't read too many books. Oh, because you hate to finish them. No, because it's just not, I don't know. You don't feel a great sense of accomplishment like you do when you finish a video game. I enjoy reading books. I should read more books. Um, But you didn't enjoy the ending of this book, which is going to be the the crux of this podcast episode. I think that, first of all, it didn't suit my taste, but I respect it. And I think that there's a lively conversation to be had about the ending of this book. Very good. But first things first. We got to start with uh, chapter seven, which was um, a rip roaring way to start off uh, this reading section. is my favorite chapter in the book. Um, it concerns Lester Morrow, who is uh, uh, an organist who works part time uh, at the stadium. Uh, it's called Salt River Field, I think. Um, and his sort of journey from a promising young pianist in New York City to middling organist for minor league baseball stadiums um and uh simultaneously uh william goslin who in fiction is the great great grandson of goose goslin i believe he's a great grand nephew acclaimed tater talk goose goslin you're right he's a nephew i think yes um uh who, who himself plays first base uh for the fictional uh, Los Angeles Lions system. He's like freshly drafted, and for some reason they keep him in. Like they don't cut him for way too long of a time. That if there if I had a question about this chapter, it was uh, why he was still there. Um, sometimes they keep top prospects up for a long time to get a long look at them. My question was really why they were berating him so hard after he went one for four with a walk. Um, I think that. More than anything, that spoke to the character of Tomas Monterey, who I don't think we're supposed to like at all. Uh, no, he's a real jerk. Uh, we're supposed to... Shades of um, Richie Incognito, I think. That kind of bullying. Reminded me of that. Yeah, really harsh bullying that obviously really deeply affects Goslin. I think that we're definitely... I mean, I don't know. It, 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 I feel like the only reason that we could possibly be made to feel this strongly about such a minor character is to drive home what a terrible trade 
um, Trey Townsend. Yes. For Tomas Monterey was. Yes, it's noted in the book that nobody likes the arrangement. Goodyear doesn't like it. Nobody's happy that Tomas Monterey is starting in the outfield now. And he's very cruel to William Goslin after what he perceives to be a bad game on his part. But it's not just Monterey because then the manager comes in and delivers one of the cruelest sentences I've ever read, which is like, great game, everyone. Well, almost everyone. I'm going to pull that up. Um, So I don't know. It felt a little like unrealistic that after having not a fantastic game, but getting on base twice, everyone thinks that's it. This guy's getting cut for sure. He's terrible. Well, of course he's going to get cut. He's like 18 years old. He was old just drafted, point. yes. It is. Of yeah. course he's going to get cut, and he knows it. The question really was whether he would get sent to double A or high A, and he winds up getting sent to high A after his terrible one for four performance with a walk. Thomas Monterey uh, compares William Goslin early in Chapter 7 to a first rounder on some other team, Tampa's first rounder who hit for the cycle in spring training. Yes. And he's like, yeah, that's what a first-rounder should be doing. But that's not... I don't know. I don't know. I feel bad, like, nitpicking baseball stuff in this book. But what the heck? That's not how first-round draft picks work in baseball at all. Well, I think there's a lot of pressure on you if you're a first-round draft pick. I think that's totally true. I think the pressure that Goslin feels in this chapter is apt. But I don't think that his performance is befitting of this kind of treatment and we don't get a sense of his performance throughout spring training so maybe he stunk it up the entire time he had 16 errors that's a lot that's a lot of errors just like his uh great great uncle goose goslin who was a bad fielder i'm trying to find the bit about his line it's Uh, not directly stated it's later on he says like Oh, I only had a walk and like a terrible excuse for a single. Well, yeah, here's the line where the manager says something mean to, well, I don't know. I think he was just being cute, maybe, but whatever. Um, what is interesting uh, about this chapter is um, where uh, the young Goslin and the organist, pianist, uh, uh, Lester Morrow, paths cross um initially it's in like a little fender bender that they have um in the uh in the in the parking lot of the stadium um my first thought on it was that there's an interesting disconnect between like how the young goslin william gosling like clearly thinks of himself and obviously, like, a lot of that has to do with, like, what his teammates think of him. Um, but, like, how he thinks of himself versus how um, that guy whose name I forget, who's the director of, like, stadium operations, treats him in relation to the organist. Because, you know, the organist is, like, very friendly. Lester Moore is very friendly to him um, about the little accident. It's, like, not described as a big accident at all. It's just, like, a little scrape or whatever. Um and he's very cordial about it. And the um, director of stadium ops is like bending over backwards to be super sweet to this 18 year old boy. Who, yes. Uh, and mean to Moro, who he yeah. doesn't respect because he's not figured out the new computerized organ system. How dare he? Yeah, terrible. 
I like that character. He's like my favorite. I was texting you while yeah, um, I was in the middle of it, and you like at one point you sent me a text message that seemed like it might have had a spoiler in it because you were like we don't. Ultimately, you just said like we don't want a rogue organist or something like that, something neutral. Um, but I, I like expected there to be a turn <laughs> on this character where he was going to turn out to be like dark or a jerk or something like that. I totally think he's a jerk. I don't. He's a little sad, but I don't. I think like that everybody... there are a bunch of lines in this that allude to a man who is not very forgivable. For one thing, the reason that he doesn't make a big deal out of the fender bender with Goslin is because he doesn't want the police looking into how many DUIs he has. He's portrayed as an alcoholic, always has liquor on his breath, he keeps liquor in his glove compartment. Well, I mean, then we could get into it. We're, we're going to get into a larger conversation about what we do with uh, flawed characters in novels. And then uh, in another part of the story, he alludes to how when he was young, he could talk any woman into bed from 14 to 40. We're going to talk a lot about flawed characters, I think, in this. Okay, so I just, I don't, I don't think he's all peaches and roses. I think, you know, yes, I agree this is a deeply flawed character, and personally, I have a negative impression of him. I, I have mostly a neutral impression of him. Um, I, uh, I, I enjoy the details about the piano that he loves so much, yeah. and the effort that, that they had to go through to get the piano into his uh, walk-up apartment, Um and that in itself is kind of an interesting symbol of like where Lester Morrow is in his life. Uh, I forget why he made his way to Arizona in the first place. It had something to do with the injury that he sustained. Yeah, he smashed up his hand in a car accident, which we'll talk a little a little bit more in a second. But it's given him arthritis in his left hand, and so mm-hmm. the hot air is supposed to keep it from getting worse. Yeah. So Lester Morrow's sort of backstory um, is that he was a pianist of of, of some promise. Uh, as a teenager in New York City, he um, was close friends with, in fiction, he was close friends with a real-life jazz bassist whose name is Scott LaFaro, who um, would come to be, it seems like a pretty notable bassist, uh, and the Wikipedia page, and I really appreciate his Wikipedia page because it's detailed but not too detailed, <laughs> Um you know what I mean? Sometimes if you're really famous and your Wikipedia page has, like, sections and subsections and just, like, paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs, and it's like, oh my god. Um, but this one's just got, like, it describes what seems to be, like, a, a fruitful life. Mm-hmm. Um, it talks about how, like, Miles Davis wanted to work with him. Uh, he was he was working with Stan Getz, and uh, he, he was a frequent collaborator with Bill Evans, and in fact, um, um, the, the, the way that the story goes is that in a way, Lester is sort of pushed, it's not pushed, I don't know, but like, LaFaro, I guess, what's the word? Like, he advances to a point past, what it reminded me of was the relationship between um, Jimmy Cardozo, the fictional catcher, and Greg Carver, the fictional pitcher, um, where Cardozo sort of like levels up almost and like even though they started in the same place Cardozo just get kind of gets to a place of success more quickly uh than Carver does yeah um and so um Lofero, uh in the story uh seems to kind of eclipse Lester Morrow of talent and kind of like grow out of him as a pianist and into 
Bill Evans, who is uh, one of the better pianists, one of the more famous pianists of his time, I guess. Um, it's interesting you interpret it that way. I interpret it slightly differently, which is more as a function of luck. The Bill Evans trio needs a bassist at the time that Scott LaFaro was available and playing bass. Obviously, they don't need a pianist, um, so consequently, they have no use for Lester. And I interpret it more that way. And you could look at it the same way with the story of, of Greg Carver, that the Major League team had more need for a catcher at that time than pitchers. Maybe that's the truth. So maybe there's some parallelism there either way. I think that, I mean, I don't know if that's, like, I, I can't remember if that's specifically true of their situation, because the other thing is that Greg Carver got, had Tommy John. Um, but I feel like as a general matter, it's true that you know, there's there's always more depth at pitcher than there is at any given position, you know? Yeah. Um, so on, in that way, you know, Cardozo is lucky in the sense that he doesn't have to wade through, like, a bullpen of eight or whatever and um, five in the rotation before he can get to the majors. You know, he just has to be the next catcher up in AAA. Um and in that way, his advancement is a matter of something of a matter of luck. Um, in real life, though, I mean, by all accounts, it seems like, well, by all accounts, it seems like Scott LaFaro is a very good bassist. But by all accounts, it also seemed like in fiction, Lester Morrow was a pretty good pianist uh, until um, the car accident that did in real life kill uh, Scott LaFaro uh, in upstate New York on the way back from the Newport Jazz Festival. Um, and which in fiction, um, uh, Lester Morrow was in the car for, um, and, uh, damaged his hand in the process. Um, he moves himself to Arizona. Uh, he starts playing at church sometimes for a little bit of money. I think he played the organ at the Diamondbacks games. Um, and then the Diamondbacks computerized completely and got him, put him out of work. Um, he's kind of like putting together a meager living at this point playing, at the uh, spring training stadium and um, in the casino, mm-hmm. um, which is again uh, where his path crosses with uh, the young Goslin. Yeah, Goslin um, had arranged an internet date to meet at the casino and said, "Don't worry, I'm over twenty-one and I can purchase alcohol." And then Lester, who had recognized him earlier from the fender bender, comes over and starts talking to him about basketball. Seems like everybody kind of has. Uh, the kids back with regard to purchasing alcohol um he seems to know the bartender and the piano player at the casino and someone else buys him booze a lot too i forget who though i bet that that is true of a lot of young athletes oh yeah definitely i mean that's i don't know i don't know it's the waiter the person who brings room service we'll ring him up for hamburgers but actually bring him a bunch of booze yes um there's a particularly sad little exchange in this chapter wherein the girl that Goslin has invited to the hotel realizes that this is relatively unlikely, but whatever, realizes that he looks just like this kid, William Goslin, and then he asks, how is he? And she says, he kind of sucks. Devastating. It seems like he does kind of suck, but again, like, so this is what, I mean, we talked a little bit last time about, like, uh, what privilege can do to you. Yeah. Um, and like how it can 
blind you to people who do not have privilege and are much worse off than you are in reality. Sure. Um, and so, like, re- as as a reader, as someone who knows about the reality of baseball, and honestly, like, it's spelled like he spells out what the reality of baseball is, which is that he's 18 years old and and doesn't have to be like setting the world on fire right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact of his uh, signing bonus, the fact of how other first rounders tend to uh, perform allegedly according to his very mean teammates um, kind of creates this pressure where there doesn't really need to be any pressure. Um, so, you know, you take it as devastating and it's, it's fine to take it as devastating. Someone said something mean about him uh, and I get that, but like... Uh, he also a gets, reader, a, you know, a million dollar signing bonus and a Porsche and he gets to stay in a, a nice hotel. Yeah, and it's something that like I read it and I kind of laughed it off because I was like yeah you do kind of suck right now and like there's there's there are points made uh in the chapter about how he's like he takes extra time to uh work on uh fielding ground balls before games um and he's on like a diet that will help him bulk up and so like you know there's like a clear and like they talk about like all of the like sacrifices that he made interpersonally um coming from new jersey by signing out of high school uh, to a baseball team while his friends went off to college. Um, and so, I don't know. I think I think in the moment, sacrifice can be very difficult, obviously. Um, but, like, I, and, and I, I think it's, it's also difficult to, like, f- have uh, Lester Morrow as a foil because, you know, you look at someone whose promise has faded um, pretty precipitously and through no fault of his own. Mm-hmm. And you, you kind of have to wonder uh, whether that will happen to uh, the young William Goslin. Um, but, y- you know, in the present, the fact is that he is putting work in and he's, like, making sacrifices. Um, and he does have $2 million. And that $2 million might represent something of a pressure on him, but it's $2 million. I mean, he did have $2 million uh, until he crossed paths. Uh, after he crossed paths with... Uh, Lester Mora, the organist, he crosses paths in the same casino bar with Jason Goodyear, um, who sweet talks him out of, I, I don't, I didn't think it was all of the signing bonus because I think later it's mentioned that he only has like $500,000 in the duffel bag. Um, and the kid I think spent like a hundred thousand dollars on this Porsche, Mm -hmm. which again, like the, the Porsche to me and what I really wanted to talk in this chapter about was the cars again. Um, it represents this promise. It represents like what he's worth in a way. Um, and then when he gets into accidents and um, is there some other, like I can't recall specifically if there's some other sort of like kid glove treatment of the Porsche by him. Um I don't know what but, you mean. I mean, like, he seems to care for the Porsche as though, like, that is his promise. And any, like, any small ding, any little fender bender with, like, some crappy Oldsmobile is going to make the Porsche un drivable or just like not worthy of what it is of like it's hundred thousand dollar price tag of the fact that it's a porsche um 
And I like I think that like that's sort of the pressure that comes with being able to afford that kind of thing is that you feel that you constantly need to live up to that. And you know, he also has this uh, family legacy. He's the great grandnephew of a pretty famous old timey baseball player. Um, and so you know, like there's a lot to his story about like living up to expectations. I think, um, and it's difficult to again, it's difficult to see him set off against. Um, uh, 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 the person whose whose promise has faded, um, though, again, as a reader, I feel like I don't like want him to be beating himself up about it, you know. You're saying that you sympathize with the character. I do, but like it's different. I think, I mean, it's not. I guess it's sympathy. I don't know. I I like. I feel like I have a perspective on the character that he doesn't that the character himself does not have. Mm. And it's it's obviously like that perspective is created by the foil between him and the organist. Um, and you like look at this character who, you know, is, as you point out, very deeply flawed uh, and who has seen better days, whose best days are behind him, um, but who's still largely like pretty upbeat, I guess. Mm-hmm. I think that's why I enjoyed the character so much is because he like, seems to have overcome so much and is kind of just like living a reasonably well-balanced life in spite of like what what life has put him through and like looking at that in comparison to William Goslin who is putting himself through so much more than he needs to um yeah like that's the perspective that I'm talking about that's why I like ultimately sympathize with both of the characters um because, like, I think that the message in the chapter is, like, you don't need to be so hard on yourself at this point because, like, life can do that for you and you can still come out the other end of it, okay? Uh, so, you know, there's no reason to kind of, like, pile on for yourself, you know? What are your thoughts? To me, I think Lester seems sad. I'm surprised that you take uh, so much positivity out of his story. Uh, when I read about his life, I don't get a lot of this sense that you do of he's making the most of the circumstances that he's given. He seems to be really upset with the computerization of the organ machine. Uh, he's drinking all the time. He doesn't seem to be making enough money. He's really regretful about the jobs that he used to have. Uh, it might just be a, a difference in our personalities and what we took away from it. Um, but to me, this is a story of two people who are not coping very well with their circumstances. Um, okay, so this is the... I made a particular note of um, the passage that describes his piano. Um, it's, for me, it's page 254, but I'm sure that's different for you. Yeah, um, That's okay, I it, remember. It's, it's just at the beginning of the section about Lester. It's, it, it begins... It's, it's said that desert air is good for preserving pianos, and Lester's Hamburg Steinway, a 1927 model taking up a quarter of his apartment, is just getting better as the years tick by. Um, and the reason that, that was significant to me is because this book overall is so much about how uh, time can be, like, punishing in a lot of ways. And, like, can, like, create a lot, but the, the way that time creates is through destruction and through, like, constant change and just like you know the crumbling of mountains basically is 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 what the interstitials kind of get at you know 
all the talk about geologic time is, is to say, like, so much death has occurred in Arizona to get us to 2011. Like, so much has had to disappear. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought it was so interesting that, that to make a note at that point that, like, the desert air and time have been very kind to this one specific artifact that belongs to this one specific character who I agree with you is very sad and clearly like has been through a lot. Um, that piano wound up symbolizing a lot for me. Like I think it it colored a lot of what I thought about the character. Um, because ultimately he moved to Arizona for the air. Um, and you know, you hear people talk about like going places for the air or whatever so much it's kind of seems like a cliche to the point where you wonder if that is a real thing or if it's just like um putting someone in a more comfortable position before they die or whatever the heat the Um, desert doesn't seem comfortable to me (laughs) personally i would not want to die in the phoenix desert the passage continues that hot dry air is supposed to be good for bones too Though in Lester's experience, it doesn't make things better. It just keeps them from getting too much worse. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was going to bring up. It's not that he's experiencing this great benefit. It's that he's at best able to keep things in limbo. I think that given what he's been through, given that he survived a car accident where he saw like a very close friend of his and a close friend of his whose promise was advancing uh, in the direction that his seemed to be advancing in, like, the fact that he survived that and the fact that, like, this piano is surviving as a metaphor, uh, to me, is a positive thing. Um, um, preservation is, and especially preservation through adversity, by any means, I think, is to be valued. Um, and that's why I think of this kid who has the pressure of his bonus has the pressure of his teammates and his coaches and you know seems to be coping minimally um like i just think like it could be a lot worse and in fact it is a lot worse for some people like this organist or like Corey matthews when stacked up to uh stephen smith um they cope um and that's i don't know if that's valuable to me i I admire that in in an individual um yeah that's right that's where i come from on that one let's let's talk about chapter eight um heck yeah let's do it which was a surprising Mm. narration well it was it was a surprising a surprising take um it turns out that this chapter is from the perspective of the family that had squatted in oh i don't remember his name the hitting michael taylor. michael taylor the hitting coach from chapter one whose house had been trashed by a mysterious family well it turns out it's alex's family alex the being the eight. the young boy who this chapter focuses on as well as his sister and his mom who are quite destitute and uh squatting in his house and then squatting in different places quite a sad chapter and- Eventually, they make their way to the same complex that um, Tammy is, quote-unquote, squatting in. Mm -hmm. Um, 
it's at this point that I started a tire of all of the closed loops sort of the very convenient connections yeah there yeah. were a lot of them in this chapter that the fact that alex is uh liana goodyear alex's teacher is liana goodyear the mm-hmm. fact yeah. that so many people seem to be lions fans despite the fact that they're in phoenix is weird to me <laughs> uh yeah no that's a good point i was gonna say like because they're his family the kids family yeah. uh are lions fans from oregon right um which I guess makes it's a fine. Some people sense. are Lions fans everywhere. The bartender in the last chapter is a Lions fan. Alex is a Lions fan, even though he's from Oregon. But the fact that he is a Lions fan, that he happens to be the the family that squatted in Michael's Taylor's house, Michael Taylor's house, and that his teacher is Miss Goodyear, one too many conveniences for me. It was kind of a lot this chapter. Uh, it was overwhelming a little bit. I mean, it's it, it, it told the story, and I think it probably. I think there there are probably some perspectives on writing, and like it's it's very soon after this time period, so I, I don't know how these perspectives have developed in the intervening twelve years or whatever. But I think that probably for certain writers, if you are going to represent that very particular moment in time, you kind of have to give it a face and have to like really reckon with what happened to people after the recession. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and that's, that's, I feel like that's more or less what this chapter is for, uh, it, it acknowledges that like coming out of 08 was really difficult. Um, it gives, uh, another perspective on Tammy, um, that I think I hadn't really considered that like she is squatting in a way. Yeah. Um, um, uh, and, uh, you know, just like this family who, I don't know, I don't really have a lot to say about this chapter. It just like, it, it, it. It a little bit reminded me of the um, the Sarah chapter, chapter three, I think, um, where it it serves like the character. It it almost like inverts that one actually, because like that character of Sarah is present throughout the rest of the novel, and and she's gonna be important a little bit in chapter nine too. Um, but as far as her perspective is concerned, it's really like the the perspective that she gives in her chapter is kind of like just as a matter of having a through line to the next chapter or to the next sort of instance in Jason Goodyear's life. Yeah, Alex is uh, becomes central to the very end of the novel in chapter 9. Yeah. Uh it's foreshadowed a bit. I don't know if it's foreshadowed if that's the right word, but um so what you need to know what's important to glean from this chapter in terms of plot at least um is that uh, the kids' mom um, relies on has relied on uh, her boyfriend, who seems to be a drug dealer, maybe um, for money, and then also maybe drugs. Um, and she uh, gets herself a job. They they're squatting in the same uh, housing complex as Tammy. She gets herself a job um, working as a concession operator at Salt River Field. Yeah, concession stand employee at Salt River yeah. Field. Um, she has worked as a concession stand employee before in Oregon um, and has this kind of arrangement with her son where infrequently, if no one else can watch him, she'll bring him to work with her and, like, leave him in the car. Uh, and she has taught him how to operate the heater and the air conditioning, so if it gets too hot or too cold, um, he will uh, sensibly be okay. Um 
they are driving, uh, if you'll recall, um, oh, I'm sorry, I don't remember her name, Michael Taylor's wife. Leon, no, that's Goodyear. Um, Jason Goodyear. I don't know. Yeah, they're still driving that Camry, that old Camry. Yeah. Um, whose air conditioning slash heater may or may not be in the best working condition. I think the uh, issue was not that the AC was broken, although it could be because that was mentioned in the first chapter, but that the keys weren't in the car. What? The AC, he had the key. He had the key? Yeah, remember that guy who um, also works with his mom as a concession stand right. employee? like finds him and is like your mom had to leave or something you're probably yes i remember you're probably right that it was that the ac didn't work in the car but if i were a kid i would not have known that the engine needed to be on for the ac to work so i think that that's also a possibility i you know regardless whatever happened happened and the end result uh oh and he also like watches goslin taking ground balls it was kind of just like a lot in this chapter the end result is that he winds up uh, in the trunk of this car in like the hot Arizona sunlight as chapter eight closes uh, and there's no resolution um, something of a cliffhanger um, uh, it saves us saved for chapter nine which is at long last Jason Goodyear's chapter um, I want to ask you one thing about chapter eight of course what do you think about Miss Goodyear teaching about how sharks used to live in Arizona what do I think about I know it? that you love the repeated shark imagery, so every time I saw sharks in this, I would circle it and ask, uh, what does Tim think about this? I liked it. Well, so I, I, I particularly liked the shark imagery in as it related to, like, as it related very directly to Tammy's chapter, mm-hmm. um, because it, it kind of made me wonder about her, like, why that detail of, like, prehistoric Arizona was being... Um, highlighted before her 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 perspective um i don't know i didn't i that i didn't have like much of an opinion on that detail in the chapter beyond the fact that it kind of felt like another convenience um (laughs) that like miss goodyear happened to be talking about this thing that our uh you know spirit guide through the rest of this book seems to not be able to shut up about all right i I, I was just curious because i know you love the sharks i didn't feel that it like it didn't it didn't ring to me as anything that symbolized much beyond like a thing that a kid might be interested in learning um which he was um and it is interesting i'm not like against that like it's totally cool um (laughs) sharks sharks yeah (laughs) why not Uh, as alex would say it didn't have much uh, symbolic resonance for me in that in that instance, though. All right, I'm sorry to well, say. Well, what about this next instance of sharks being brought up? Uh, at the beginning of chapter nine, the unnamed sports writer says, "The very existence of sharks is improbable." How about that? Any more thoughts? No. Sorry. Fine. Want to talk about chapter nine now? Chapter nine is the last chapter in the novel. Just like there are nine innings in a baseball game, there are nine chapters in this novel about baseball. Oh. Okay, I'm glad we cleared that up because I feel like you didn't understand that. I wasn't getting it, and I was like, why not ten chapters? Why not just like a nice round number? (laughs) Right. The whole time you were like, "Ah, boy, I wish there were ten chapters. This chapter is about, you guessed it, Jason Goodyear. Yeah, uh, it talks about sort of like his own journey 
you find out that not only does he love baseball, but he has also loved poker from a young age. Yeah. Fine. You uh, hate it. I just didn't. It revealed nothing to me. It revealed a lot to me. I think this entire okay. book, your you start with this image of Jason very specifically as Goody Two Shoes, as this mm-hmm. Mike Trout, Derek Jeter like figure who is very responsible and upstanding baseball citizen. You gradually learn about his gambling. You're like, oh, that seems bad. And then you learn about the amount of money that he's losing gambling, and you're like, wow, that seems incomprehensible. And then you learn that he owes money to the mob, and you're like, I can't believe this gets worse and worse. Um, And then in this chapter, you have a reveal that was really effective for me, maybe not as much for you, that this teacher we married, Liana Goodyear, throughout the book, you're kind of left with the impression that he has married this... uh, it like furthers his image almost that he like hasn't married a supermodel or whatever, yeah. and that he's just like married a school exactly teacher. that he met this school ne- a school teacher presumably a good natured person it's really interesting that he had this relationship it gives me an impression of him and then it's revealed in this chapter that he meets um, Liana Goodyear as she is in the midst of her own gambling binge in day two at the craps table and their relationship is founded on these crazy gambling binges. Um, so it's just the whole book has been about the degradation of our image of Jason Goodyear. Yeah, I mean, I uh, like I say, I, I don't, I, I respect that the journey that we've been taken on, like I, I respect how that was built. I, I see what you're saying, and everything. I, I think my knock on it, like from a craft perspective, is that I don't think that I got enough of the image of Jason Goodyear as like clean cut mm-hmm. um and instead i like i feel like i was just accustomed to understanding that he was a very flawed character um and um mostly it frustrated me that his flaws seemed to be evident to everyone but him in spite of the huge hole that he had dug himself into um and that within the fiction that we don't see him face any consequences really um and then the fact that and so the way that the story ends is um that he uh of course as we mentioned in chapter seven fleeces uh the kid of very much of his signing bonus again i believe it's like five hundred thousand dollars um in order to cover cover his gambling losses um and he uh, meets whoever, like, this guy's muscle, the, the, the mob muscle in, like, this shady parking lot. Um, and, like, gives him the $500,000 in a duffel bag. And the guy's like, well, we need interest. And so takes his car uh, to his, like, beloved Jeep, which... It's I, revealed I, that his mom bought for him in high school. Yeah, I really thought that there was going to be more of a payoff for that, too, and there wasn't... Um, I kind of could have guessed. I like feel like I almost did guess that from the first moment that someone's like, why is this guy driving a Jeep? Um, and it's like, that's probably like his beloved car. Uh, and that's all it turned out to be was his, his beloved car. Uh, and then he, of all he the gets very rid of it. For of the all the interesting money. cars in this story, that Jeep is like the least interesting car, mm. it turns out. Um, 
Yeah, so uh, the guy takes his Jeep uh, as interest on the 500000 that he owes, and I think he even still owes like a fair amount of money after the 500k. Well, I think that that counts as interest because they're degrading him, even though the Jeep is not actually worth enough money to cover what would be the interest. Right. So, but what happened was, um, uh, he just like kind of hurriedly agrees to give away his Jeep because he's hitting rock bottom. Um, and then realizes that he left his wallet and his phone in the Jeep uh, and has no way to get to the stadium on time for the game. He is sure to be so late for the game. Everyone is sure to be so mad at him. The world will finally know like what a like degenerate, uh, really messed up guy Jason Goodyear is. Um, and you know probably because like the, the fact is that he arrives at the game by like the third inning, so probably the wheels are already turning on that mm-hmm. narrative. Yeah. Um, but before, and, you know, the thing that, like, precludes uh, we, the readers, from even tasting those consequences <laughs> um, is the fact that Goodyear happens to stumble on the kid mm-hmm. uh, asleep in an overheating car. Um, who And he uh, smashes up the window uh, and rescues him. Um, and then that's the end of the novel. Yeah. Um, and um you make a point that like it's obviously like intentional to end the novel at this point and like you're just kind of like left to uh wonder about you know his fate um and i think perhaps you know in all likelihood he will face a consequence um due to his gambling debts it, it seems more and more people are becoming aware of it um for one thing uh, Sarah, the nurse, uh, his agent's nurse, um, recognizes the mob muscle, and so gets at, by the end of her time in the novel a pretty clear picture of like what his deal actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, has hit up his agent for money. At this point, um, he's also been like charged with a misdemeanor, so his, he's on thin ice with the manager, but certainly like missing the game without an excuse will uh, uh, put him in the soup even more deeply with the manager, uh, though we don't get to see it. Um, but all of that will kind of be mitigated in some sense, I imagine, I have to, or we are left to imagine, uh, by the fact that he rescued this kid. Uh, and I just... Don't. It just seemed kind of cheap, almost. Like that—that that was the thing. You know what I mean? Like the fact that like this story is building a flawed character and is like putting you, starting you in a place where you're like, oh, this is Mike Trout. This is the like um, 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 keeps to himself, not very flashy, but like out of this world talented baseball player and like then leads you through his degeneration um the fact that the like the little cherry on top the like redeeming bit to like remind you that he's flawed and like has good in him yet um is this like the you know for how much we knock chapter eight for being very convenient this is also kind of a very convenient way to rehabilitate his image 
uh, or like at very least to complicate what will be a damaged image in the future fiction of this, like the theoretical future fiction of this book. What do you think about that as an intentional idea? That there is something about Goodyear's privileged position that even in this bad situation, something presents itself in a way that's going to mitigate it for him. That even at his own rock bottom, he's not going to be, he's not going to experience the same rock bottom that someone else did. It's an interesting idea, and it's a very sad idea, I think, ultimately. Uh, and it, it's a frustrating idea. I don't think that means that it's not, that it doesn't ring true, because, you know, putting it that way, it certainly rings true. Um, and, and and has rung true, as a matter of fact, throughout the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, privilege can cover your ass and can act as a parachute and make your falls less hard. Um, I think just as a reader going through this book the first time and just like being freshly exposed to this character and his story, I think I just found it frustrating and maybe that's intentional and, and you know, maybe I ought to have been frustrated and, and maybe that's exactly what the author wanted. So good on her. Um, it's just in such a blind rage. What a jerk. How do you interpret the last line of dialogue in this book, which is hang on uh, something that Goodyear says? It seems like it's intended. That's what bothers you. You don't yes. like that last line of the book. I'm going to read the entire last chapter. Uh, spoilers. I'll read the whole chapter. The uh, last paragraph. <laughs> Hang on, he says again. Jason Goodyear means it as some sort of hope for that wilted, red-faced kid in his arms. But goddammit, if his words couldn't have meant, been meant for himself, if they couldn't have been meant for all of us. So obviously, you know, it's the last line of a book. It's intended to be something very meaningful. And that sentence is, hang on. Um, as if to say, there's uh, there's always more ahead. The circle of fifths is going to repeat itself. You can round the bases one more time. I think there's something um, in this about the way that the novel ends, that there's a lack of conclusiveness to it. Yeah, I just think that, like, like I know that he will weather this. Like, I, I there's no question that he will weather this. He is a famous athlete. But what about Alex? Less certain. Um, and, you know, so maybe in the theoretical future fiction of this novel, this represents, mm, like, a a, a revival arising up from rock bottom, and, like, a sort of clarity or consciousness of, uh, the suffering of others and the fact that you shouldn't just, like, or, like, the, the resultant sort of implication being that, like, as a multimillionaire, you probably shouldn't fritter away your money on thrill-seeking behavior. Uh-huh. Um, it just seems like, like I, I don't know, maybe, like, you make an interesting point, and it's complicated, and so maybe this, like, is successful in this way, but it's just so easily won for him. I don't, it's, it's just very frustrating to me because it has been staring me in the face for nine chapters. You know what I mean? Like, he acknowledges that it's thrill-seeking behavior. He acknowledges that is deep. he is deep in the shit. Um, and so I'm just, like, looking at this as a reader being like, take care of yourself. Do something. Like, make a change. And uh, it's... Uh, it bugs me, although maybe this also rings true, that, like, it takes something as cataclysmic as that event um, for him to theoretically make a change Mm -hmm. Uh, and you make a good point that like or you make an interesting point that um 
you know, we don't get to see that change being made. I appreciate that you <laughs> revised that it was a good point. You thought better of that. <laughs> I mean, like, no, I don't. I, I, I mean, like, it's a point that is, it's there. It's like, I, I, what I mean is. No, I got you. I don't know. You observed the point. Well observed. Thank you. Uh, um, yeah. I, like, yes. Uh, so I put this question in the show notes, and now it seems more relevant than I thought it would. Do you think Jason is a good focal point for this novel? Would it be different if a different character was the the focal point or if no character was the focal point? Having had this conversation, I think I do kind of appreciate what him being the center of this universe does mm-hmm. for the story. Um and it's it's interesting to see it spun out and to like measure him up against all the other people who are in the story and are like clearly going through it like through no fault of their own whereas he has put himself in this position through uh um his sort of skewed relationship to his wealth yeah um I think the structure of this book mirrors again, again, we're going to talk about privilege, but the way that these sorts of figures exist in the world. If this book were about Jimmy Cardozo, you couldn't realistically make the case that his circle of impact is going to be this big. But when you have these monumental players who are this good or this rich, everything is going to circle around them, protect them. Um, and, and, and be related to them in a certain way. It's the same way that baseball always has primacy over everything, that people's lives are referred to in baseball terms all the time, like there's no difference. Um, it feels the same way with Jason and the Lions and the area in general, as if everything is inherently sucked into that orbit. I think it's interesting to like reflect on, oh, what was that chapter? Six was the one about the baseball wives? Mm-hmm. Um, to consider, like, that entire kind of, what's the, what am I trying to, like, like, it, 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 that chapter removes a subject, like, it removes the subject, I think, intentionally. Um, Yeah, we disagree on this, but I think it aims to do that. What? No, yeah, that's what I said. It aims to do that. I don't think it actually does it. Um, well, I mean, by and large, and we don't need to rehash the yeah. whole debate, but for the purposes of my point, by and large, I think the idea that like the baseball wives are referred to and are related to us collectively, uh, comments on that, what you just talked about, that sort of like all consuming, uh, nature of baseball to the people who are in its orbit, um, and so, and then it becomes kind of interesting to zoom in then and like lay the subject on it, uh, and consider like, uh, Jason and his relationship to his wife, which is not, uh, discussed in great detail in the chapter because the details aren't known, uh, at that point. Um, but her life is pretty much destroyed, um, by his relationship to baseball. Yeah. Uh, she kind of, uh, she also, you know, is the beneficiary of some residual privilege, um, by the fact that, like, she gets to keep the house, uh, she gets a fair amount of alimony, 
uh, out of it. Um, but she has to sign an NDA. Like, she is uh, silenced by baseball. In yeah. Um, I forget why I started talking about this. Oh, you made a point about the all-consuming nature of baseball, and I think it's interesting to consider um, Jason Goodyear as the ultimate subject, the ultimate center, the the black hole in the center of the baseball universe. Um, just kind of uh, damaging everything he touches, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. He takes it. He takes that. He takes a fair amount of the kids' yep. money. Uh, he threatens his relationship with his wife. He threatens his agent's livelihood to some extent. Mm-hmm. I mean, his agent has got other clients and concerns and whatever, but like, still, that's a that's an yeah. egg. Well, he disrespects uh, the Jimmy Cardozo with his exploits. He? Yeah, he dehumanizes him when he says, "You know, you don't matter enough to hide this behavior from Greg Carver." Greg Carver, I apologize. That's fine. Um, yeah, uh, a good center. Good, interesting kind of way of considering the underbelly of this game. And it's not even... It's it's hard to think of it as the underbelly, but it is from our perspective, right? Because, like, as the readers, we presumably, unless you're, like, Mike Trout reading this, like, Mike Trout could probably be like, yeah, it's not quite like that. Um, or maybe he would acknowledge the truth of it, but like for us, like this, I think it's, it's ultimately like an illuminating kind of novel because, um, it reveals to us that there is more to baseball than the myth that we make of it or like more to baseball than what appears on ESPN Mm -hmm. or what have you more to baseball, even than what baseball wants you to know about it. Right. MLB is, is ultimately like pushing a product. Um, and I think that what is like accomplished very well ultimately in this novel is um that it's more than that that like it's like it's it it, the the product is not as shiny as it seems uh and is in some ways kind of damaging i think i think that's well said and i just want to leave with this observation is the last thing we say about the book character is called jason goodyear but to be honest he's having a pretty bad year so far it's a bad year You might call him Jason Badger. <laughs> yeah, if you wanted to be a little bit, a little bit clever. Yeah, just kind of underhanded or satirical. <laughs> well, I should say first uh, before I give the snake fact um, that uh, in, in order to avoid uh, terribly overlong podcast conversations, uh, our next book club will concern an entire book, uh, which we will endeavor to devour uh, over the next two weeks uh, and have ready for you. Uh, by that time, uh, and so we'll be reading. Um, oh God, the title is too <laughs> up again. The uh, Universal the Baseball Universal... Association Inc. J. Henry Woe. I don't even know. No, you have to do it. I'm sorry for even trying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, our next book is uh, the Universal Baseball Association Incorporated. J. Henry Waugh. I don't know proprietor. Uh, uh, a novel by Robert Coover, uh, written in the year 1968. I love that. I love to get a little bit of diversity in our published dates. About, uh, uh, I, we talked a little bit about this, I think, on the Twitch stream. Uh, from what I know about it, it is about, like, a version of, like, Stratomatic, like, tabletop dice baseball. Um, 
it should be a wild breed. <laughs> I think this is fun. Um, I'm excited about this one. I, I again, I so like we'll, the diversity of it. I think it'll be interesting to discuss an older book. We will check in with you in two weeks, uh, having read that book. And in the meantime, uh, I got a snake fact for you. This snake fact uh, comes to us courtesy of uh, Duncan's mom. Uh, it's been sitting in our inbox for a really long time, and I intentionally kept it marked as unread every time I go through my inbox to make sure that we don't uh, lose it and make sure that I can read it here on the podcast. The snake fact is as follows. Uh, unlike most other kinds of snakes, anacondas don't lay eggs, but instead deliver live babies. I don't know how to pronounce this word. Um, this word is ovoviparous, which is something we've talked is... about in episode 52. <laughs> Oh, did we already we, do We did a similar fact? snake fact. Originally, I went back because I was like, I feel like we've done this exact snake fact, but this is this is different enough. We talked about snakes that do give live birth, but this is specific to anacondas. Yes, anacondas birth up to 40 snakes at a time, each around two feet long. Uh, and yeah, uh... <laughs> See our snake fact in episode 52 See? if you want more details on live snake birth. <laughs> Uh, so that's going to do it for us this week on Tater Tots. Uh, you can, as always, uh, donate to Baseball for All. That's an initiative that gets girls involved in youth baseball programs around the country. It's very important. Uh, there's a link to that in our show notes. You can follow us on Twitter at Tater Tots Pod. You can like us on Facebook by in the Facebook URL slash Tater Tots Pod. You can join us every Thursday night. We're streaming on Twitch. Uh, our uh, Road to the Show character, Long John McCavity, space pirate, snake enthusiast, uh, lover, uh, or you can email us, uh, tatertotspot at gmail.com. Uh, as previously mentioned, next episode, which will be in two weeks, we'll be discussing in its entirety the book whose title is It's in the long, description. Robert Coover. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, the book is a baseball book. It is by Robert Coover. It will not be difficult to Google. Or you can just listen to this podcast when I read it already. Or read the show notes. Um, yeah, be safe, everybody. Uh, wash your hands. Cover your face. Uh, in the littlest league possible In the littlest league possible The most rudimentary division of competition Networks collide To be the biggest fish in the smallest pond On the littlest island where I shall reside Texas League And meanwhile after too much And also from running too fast You run out of gas But that's not possible The littlest league possible